as the seasons change, we need to change as well. I love living in Hong Kong because the locals, they understand this. If you go to the local herbal stall, they have different herbal concoctions for the different weathers that are out there. Every day it changes. So they know this. I think most ancient cultures understood this, that if it's cold outside, we need to warm inside. If it's dry outside, we need to add wetness inside. If it's too damp, we need to dry it out. It's a constant awareness of your body and your place and your mind. And then we come back to that breath, that so um, this, this belief of I am, know thyself. If you know yourself, then you know how to heal yourself. Hey everyone, welcome to Interested, and I'm your host, Donna Edda. Interested is a result of my curiosity to explore our collective wellness wisdom, and that goes from physical to cognitive to emotional health to spirituality. This podcast is my attempt to bring nourishing conversations to help you live a higher quality, more fulfilling life. Growing up, my mum would take me to the local Chinese herbalist when I was sick or when my tongue was too white. I was told it's a sign of too much dampness in my body. I would drink the disgusting dark brown liquid that was boiled down from a bunch of leaves and sticks. And after a few days, I would usually feel better and calmer. Yet it all seems like a mystery to me. So this curiosity prompted me to reach out to my guest today. Shoshana Weinberg is an Ayurvedic and plant medicine practitioner with over 20 years of experience. She has studied under renowned herbalists such as Robin Bennett and Michael Moore. After the birth of her third child, she left her position at the Four Seasons Spa where she was the senior director for almost a decade. And in her new chapter now, Shoshana has launched a new practice, Tove Earth. It galvanizes a community of healers and non-healers worldwide to share in the power of the people's medicine. It taps into things like seasons of the natural world, plant spirit, ceremonies, indigenous thoughts, and the divine, showing us the power of wise women and heroic medicine, especially when it can work alongside modern knowledge. I'm super excited to share what I learned from Shoshana with you. So without further ado, I bring you Shoshana Weinberg. So before we started this interview, we talked about what are we trying to bring forth to the audience. Mm -hmm. And and we talked about purpose, we talked about duty, yes. light and shadow. Yes. And you mentioned that Ayurveda encapsulates all of that. Can you expand on that idea? Ayurveda being the study of knowledge or the science of life, it pretty much holds all the keys to any answer that, or any question that's out there. So when we talk about shadows or purpose, dharma, duty in life, um, light versus dark, that's all within Ayurveda. You have hatha, right? Mm. Sun and moon. That's actually what hatha means, sun and moon. So, you know, you do have the light and darkness and pretty much everything that encompasses Ayurveda. The belief, the core, I think, that I've taken from the study of Ayurveda for the many years that I've studied has been that breath, this idea of so hum, this quieting of the mind, and the understanding of how the elements play within our bodies mm. and outside of our bodies, 
give us clarity as to what is our purpose on life. And everybody has their own purpose, their own duty. Just like Ayurveda believes everybody is born with their own constitution, vata, pitta, karma, kapha. And then you have from those, it's made up of elements. So you have more elements that play within your body. Although all elements play in your body, you have certain ones that are more prevalent. So with this idea, everybody is born with their own matrix of problems, hosts of problems, and Ayurveda offers the way to balance those. What are those elements that you mentioned about? So without getting into too much of the philosophy of Ayurveda, there is the Purusha and Parakti, which are these two forces that came together to make this ultimate sound Om. And from this sound came intelligence, Mahat. And from this intelligence came elements, Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas, these qualities, let's say, that then transformed from qualities into elements. So then you have the fire, water, earth, air, and ether. And from those elements, they were grouped together. And so if you have something like air and ether more prevalent into your body, then you would have a more vata type of personality. Or if you have fire and water, it would be more pitta. And if you have water and earth, it would then be kapha. Although all three of those qualities and all five of the elements are in your body, there's all these different types of energies that play, nuclear energy, chemical energy, all these different energies are within our bodies, but some are more heavy prevalent than others. And so Ayurveda is a simple knowledge of knowing what is my Vrakuti, what was I born with, right? And then what is my Prakuti, what is out of balance, hot, cold, light, dark. And if you can figure out how, what you're born with and then how to balance it, if you're feeling cold and rough, then you need something oily and wet, right? If you're very hot, then you need something that's very cool. So it's just balancing the qualities that are within us in order to give a greater health to the body. And so that's always changing. Does that mean that when we are, are we born with that? We're born with a Vakruti. You can check the pulse. It's the deepest layer of the pulse. When you check that, you can find out what you're born with. But I can look at you right now and I could see from your face. I can see from your body structure. I could probably check from your tongue, your nails. Mm -hmm. I can check you and then I could tell you what you're born with. You could probably tell me how you sleep at night or what foods you like or what type of exercise you like. And I could also tell what it is that you're like because we're drawn to those mm -hmm. things that unfortunately are our imbalance. Is it a better one than the other? <laughs> no, because remember all three and all five of the elements are all in our body. Mm. So Vata's house is in the colon. Pitta's house is in the stomach. So, you know, you get these different places where these elements lie. And then 
you are able to see that, you know, there are some people that have a very balanced Vakruti. They're born very balanced, but maybe they've done something too much and it kicks one out of balance. Mm. So then you spend your time to rebalance it. For women, as well as for men, we go through another type of cycle, right? We have puberty, then we have, you know, childbearing some of us, and then we have menstruation stopping, going into menopause. So those cycles also are considered Vata Pitta Kapha. So then we are in different phases of our lives and we need to balance ourselves differently through those phases. It's a daily thing, environment, weather, you know, pollution, not pollution, where you live in the world. If you live in the desert, it's going to be hot and dry. Most likely your Vata is going to be raised because you're living in hot and dry. So you would want to drink more, you know, things that would help you or eat things that would help you or oil your body in a different way. Right. Right. So I'm hoping this is making sense. So our external environment makes a big difference. So just because we are one constitution, if we live in a different area, we also have to change our habits accordingly. Of course. And as well as the seasons right? As the seasons change, we need to change as well. Um, I, I love living in Hong Kong because the locals, they understand this. If you go to the local herbal, you know, stall, they have different herbal concoctions for the different weathers that are out there. Every day it changes. Mm. So they know this. I think most ancient cultures understood this, that if it's cold outside, we need to warm inside. If it's dry outside, we need to add wetness inside. If it's too damp, we need to dry it out. So we shouldn't have the same diet throughout the whole year. No, definitely not. I do believe in changing not only with the seasons, but also with how you wake up feeling. Mm. Today, did I sleep well last night? Did I sleep too much? Did I sleep with a broken pattern of sleeping? That will affect how my entire day is going to be. So then how can I feed my body so that it balances out what happened last night? Or if I had a very stressful day at work and I feel like I'm having diarrhea, it's hot, stress, heat, pitta. If that's coming out through, you know, the system, how can then I at dinner calm what it is, you know, calm the stomach, calm the heat, cool me down so that I can then have a better sleep at night. So it's a constant awareness of your body and your place and your mind. And then we come back to that breath, that so, um, this, this belief of I am, know thyself. If you know yourself, then you know how to heal yourself. And if someone comes to me for an Ayurvedic consultation, the first thing that I'll say to them is I know nothing. Everything I've learned is from my teachers. That's number one. And number two, you need to heal yourself. I can only give you a few tools. And then after those tools, it's up to you to do the healing, not for me. I don't want to become someone's you know, um, teacher. I don't want to become someone's doctor. I want you to be your own teacher. I want you to be your own doctor. And that is how Ayurveda is. They want the people. It's a people's medicine. And that goes with my herbal medicine as well. It's all about giving back to the people to heal themselves. 
Tell me more about the people's medicine and the herbal medicine. Mm. I started from a very young age being connected to weeds, you know, living in the, in the forest, everywhere you walk, you're walking on something green. Mm. Um, and so I found that from a very young age, herbal medicine was something as food. Right. And then as I got older and I was in university, I was lucky enough to study with Robin Rose Bennett, um, who had this tradition that she was taught from Susan Weed and Susan Weed was then taught from her teacher. And it's a wise woman tradition. So it's passed down through women. Mm. And I was lucky enough to be her first apprentice a first apprentice that she took as a one-on-one and she was an intense lady. Um, and if she's ever watching this, I love you. And um, I'm never going to talk poorly, but she was hard. It seems like all my teachers were hard on me, but particularly like we would be in the winter, you know, not wearing shoes, walking through the snow so that we could communicate with the plants better and feel how they felt, you wow. know, or we would be picking endless blackberries and, and our fingers would be raw and, you know, but that was part of it, right. Or picking nettles, you know, getting stung and feeling the sting and allowing the sting to go through you so that the medicine could actually communicate to you. So we learned medicine from, this type of here it is out in the forest. How do I pick it? How do I then use it in my food and then allow that medicine to work as a food source in the body and heal? Um, And then as I got even older, I wanted to study more. That's how I found Ayurveda. When learning Ayurvedic herbs, it was very different because everything is powdered you know, they do a lot of powdered or pills. And that was very far away from what I learned as the people's medicine, right? You had to, you did have to go in and get a prescription for Ayurveda because the medicines, they were always um, just a little bit more difficult to produce because they would add gums, sometimes urine, you know, you would get a lot of different, you know, types of, yeah, it was a very interesting (laughs) education. Yes. Um, So I didn't learn how to make medicine through Ayurveda. I just learned the qualities of them. So how to look at, let's say, nettle and see, is it hot or is it cold? And what taste does it have? Because the taste themselves all fall on the tongue. And once they fall on the tongue, it communicates to the entire body and already starts to balance that heat, the cold, the wet, the dry, right, the damp. So I learned that through Ayurveda. So then I then put that back into the people's medicine. So when I look at herbal medicine from the wise women, I'm also using the qualities that I learned from Ayurveda. But then I wanted to go even more and I studied with Michael Moore and, you know, bless his soul. He's passed on now, but he was a heroic herbalist. And what his belief was that you had to walk with the plants, you had to pick them, pick them with love and respect but then you had to make medicine out of them. It was all about macerating, getting the most out of them Mm. and then healing the body. So if you're broken, I'll fix you. Whereas a wise woman would say, you're going through a cycle. You're in the spiral, right? So you nourish yourself through this cycle. Whereas a heroic would say, if you're broke, I'm gonna fix it. And Ayurveda would say, okay, first, slow down, take a deep breath, 
calm your mind and let's find where your imbalances are. You know, so it's all three of those medicines and herbal ways of thinking is kind of what's operating whenever I'm talking, I think, you know. So you're merging all three. It's a merge, yeah. In an urban place like Hong Kong, Mm. where do you find these wild weeds? I mean, where do you harvest them? Well, I'm not harvesting here. Actually, there are pretty strict laws in Hong Kong for harvesting. Yeah, you're not supposed to harvest There's a few people that are out there that I found that know the plants, Mm -hmm. but I haven't yet found my teacher. I'm still looking. So if you're out there, please contact me. That could be the expert I'm looking for is I want to find someone that not only understands the plants, but can speak with them. What does that mean? We are on earth right? Gaia. Mm. We, we live on this planet. And for me and my belief, we were created from this planet, from these bacterias that grow, grew humans. So if that is the truth, then how can I not see the earth as this sacred being? And if it is a sacred being, the things that grow upon it are also sacred. So if I'm going to take plantain, which is one of my spirit allies, which is a plant, not the banana, but it's plantago, right? If I was to remove her from her soil, I am then ripping her from her sacred being. So I would want to talk to her, find out how she's doing, if she's feeling healthy, if she's willing to help. So I would always ask before picking, right? I don't just pick. And and my children even know this now. You could never just pull a plant from its root. You need to ask first or even clip it. You know, you need to get that confirmation. And again, if you close your eyes, if you focus in, if you take some breaths, if you calm your mind you can hear the plants talk. So I'm looking for that whenever I'm going out to pick is how can I be one with earth, one with these plants? And then the medicine you get from them, the food that you receive is even more nourishing. Well, that just took me to another place. I mean, I never approached it like that. Mm. Is Ayurveda healing best suited to certain conditions? Ayurveda can heal everything. Remember, it's the science of life. Um, They've been for more than 3,500 years. There are documents written by uh, Chakra Samhita. Um, He was the first doctor. We don't actually know if he was a real man, but he wrote on things that are now with names like Parkinson's disease. You know, those symptoms Mm -hmm. have been around since the beginning of time. It's just that they never had a name. And so again, they're qualities. And we look at those qualities and we figure out how to balance them, right? So that you will get greater health. Can you give us an example of how to balance a typical condition that you see quite frequently? What I see most frequently, and I'm not sure if it's Hong Kong and it quite surprises me, is constipation. There's a lot of... I'm not sure if it's the people. I'm not sure if it's 
the place. I haven't figured this out yet, but the constipation usually is a, it is a, it's the seat of Vata. So it is more of like a dry, rough feeling within the body. And so Ayurveda does many things. We have many ways of healing constipation, but many people have been constipated since they can remember. And so it's going back to when they were young, the the first time they remember the constipation, seeing what it is that they did at that point. And then at the same time, reading the pulse, reading the tongue, changing the diet, the way that you oil the body, the way that you eat your food, when you eat your food, when you sleep, what you listen to during the day, what type of exercise you do. So you go through all the lifestyle and change it so that it will help to allow for more warmth and wetness and relaxation because anxiety and dryness go hand in hand. And that may be the point is the anxiety, the stress. And stress is seen in many different ways. For pitta, it's hot. For vata, it's dry Mm. and cold. And then for kapha, kapha doesn't really stress. (laughs) They're just cool and relaxed type people. Yeah. So what's the remedy for that kind of dry and roughness? Oh, um, again, this would depend on the person. Um, it's hard to, you know, just blanket statement, what Mm. would work. But, um, I mean, the first thing that I would go to is, you know, cutting out salads, anything that's cold. So soups only, Um, using a lot of oil, like even eating oil, um, having ghee or butters. And when you say that to a Vata person, they usually are like, "Mm, but I love my salads. Exactly. Yeah. So no cold. No. If you want to eat your greens, it's best to, you know, boil them in soup so that you receive the nutrients that way. Um, if you, you know, so let's say soups, um, oils, you know, what type of oil they're putting on their body. A lot of people, they like this coconut oil phase was, you know, it was a huge boom in the society. Coconut, coconut is terrible for Vata. It is very cooling. It's great for Pitta, but for a Vata type anxiety, you know, very skinny, dry person, not the right thing. You want to use heating oils. Sesame could be good or even mustard oils, you know, things that would like heat the body. So, you know, you, you would do oilation and that would be another thing. People that are dry don't necessarily want to have their skin oily. Yeah. Right. Well, it's uncomfortable. Right. So you want to change the mind in order to heal the body. Um, so food, oleation, when they sleep, a lot of Vata people, they stay up quite late, but Vata mm-hmm. needs to go to bed early, also needs to eat earlier. There are different times. The meditation needs to be sat longer, um, cause Vata usually wants to get up and move around. It is the, the kind of movement anxiety yes. that you've seen. Just, I yeah. just want to quickly revisit yeah. what you said. We've got to change the mind first. Mm. What about your instinct? People say, right, the body knows best and the body's telling you what you need Mm -hmm. and what feels right. Yes. But if your body is constipated, then your body is not telling you the right things, right? If you're doing something and you're constipated, meaning you cannot go to the bathroom every day, then you're not listening correctly to your intuition, 
you know, the yeah. body needs to flow consistently. And, and that's with everything with urine, you know, how dry your mouth is, um, how fast your heart beats, you know, all, all of these type of indicators that we have will point you in the direction if your intuition is on. That's why I said change the mind because the mind is what controls our body. And actually it should be the other way around. Our body should control our mind, which means why do we meditate in this whole mindful way of being? We don't want our mind full. We want to close the mind, not close it, but stop it. We want to cease thoughts, clear everything, find quiet, find connection to the divine, and then then everything starts operating differently, including your digestion. Because if you think about the channels of the body, and this is going a little bit further into Ayurveda, but there are things called datus, which are the channels. And it's the same in Chinese medicine. You know, everything is, is done on channels, energetic channels in the body. Ayurveda is the same. And with these channels, if they're not flowing, we know exactly where to go and how to heal them. So we'll look at these channels in the body and figure out what is needed to balance them. And it all goes back to our state of mind. If our pituitary and hypothalamus gland, which is in the center of our brain, is overworking and doesn't have time to relax, our metabolism is messed up. Why? Because the hormone receptors, our messengers that go from our pituitary or hypothalamus go circulating through the body. They talk to the digestion. They talk to the second brain, which is the stomach, and therefore either panic, dryness, attacks happen. So if your mind is not stable and calm, mm. therefore your digestion will be affected. And if that digestion isn't going properly or is in balance, so are your intestines. So that's another channel, right? But then if you're constipated, I'm sorry, I keep talking about constipation, but if you are, then slowly those particles of undigested food leak out of the gut and then they go into the blood system. So then you start seeing in other parts of the body how the blood is then affected by this constipation. The skin is a great vehicle to show you how healthy you are. If you have a lot of acne, if it's heated acne, then it's pitta. If it's cystic acne, it's usually kapha. If it's just extremely dry skin, well, that's what, what is that? Vata. Yes. <laughs> You're testing me. <laughs> so if we look at our skin on a daily basis, we can know what's happening with what's happening inside our bodies. The liver is part of this digestive system. It's ruled by pitta. And so we know that if we have a lot of heated acne, then our liver is just working overtime. And mm. then if it's working overtime, the glands that are around it are working overtime, which also creates stress within the body. And it's, it's incredible when you start thinking about it because everything again comes yeah. back to the state of mind. Wow. Yes. Can we change it with our mind without changing the diet and everything? I know the rishis, the monks that live in the caves believe that they can. 
Um, I think you would have to dedicate a lot of time to meditation, to quieting the mind Mm. in order to make change. But yes, I, I believe you can. I believe meditation and breath can change everything in the body. How can Ayurveda benefit our everyday lives? And we're not talking about like a health issue, it's just maintenance and well-being. Is there something that you can offer to most people? It's like these are the few basic things that we should start introducing to our lives. That's a great question. Let's start small. So Ayurveda has something that's called the daily routine. And again, this is taught to me by Dr. Lod, my teacher. And for every client that I see or every person that I meet, I usually ask the same thing. What is your daily routine? And we were talking earlier, right? Sometimes we listen to our bodies and we change what is our routine. But for me, um, I believe um, with also my Judaism, which is, you know, who makes up who I am before I leave the bed, before I even put my feet over the couch or the, sorry, the bed, uh, I stop and say a prayer and it can be whatever prayer it is that you want to say. It could be to whoever God or goddess or whatever you believe, but that prayer is something of gratitude and deep connection. Okay. So it could be whatever, whatever you choose. I would be happy to offer many, you know, I've got many different ones. Then once you say that prayer, you put your feet on the ground and with the right foot first, and then the left foot, everything is done with intention. So it starts the day with a step of intention, right? Which means that everything in our day will become magic. It doesn't mean that it's going to be good magic or magic that's going to create things. I mean, you do it with this intention that you're starting the day. Okay. And then once you do that, there are a few, there's a lot of uh, techniques for this routine that comes from Ayurveda, but the ones that I would highlight That is one, the gratitude and the connection to the divine. Then making sure that you have a tongue scraper. I think that scraping the tongue not only cleans off what happened at night, but it also stimulates the digestion. So I love to have that after I brush my teeth, I scrape. I love to put oil in my mouth and do an oil pulling. And I know a lot of people are using coconut, but if you're Vata, you wouldn't. You would probably use a sesame oil that's also high in vitamin D that gets absorbed straight into the bloodstream through the the mouth, the tissues in the mouth. So I love that oil pulling. I love to then take my time and meditate. Um, It could be for five minutes. It could be for two minutes. Um, I believe that not only that prayer and, you know, cleansing ourselves, but also meditating is something that is essential. Um, You could do it while brushing your teeth if you need to. Like I brush my teeth, I brush my teeth, I brush my teeth, I brush my teeth, I brush my teeth the whole time. Just focusing on one thing to stop the thoughts of the mind. That could be your meditation. Like if you're a busy mom like me, sometimes you can't just, you know, sit and, you know, go off. You have to choose the moments that are right for you. So I do believe the practice of meditation every day is important. I do believe that you then eat a healthy breakfast 
breakfast is so important and making sure that it, it feeds the imbalance that you're feeling in the morning. So balancing the hot, the cold, the dry, the wet, the damp, we have to balance all of those. That will give us a good day. I also believe that exercise is important. Some type of exercise. And we were talking about that Tibetan five right. Um, you know, I think that even if it's just a 15 minute, five different poses to kind of get the body and, and then also to feel the body right? In just going out to do a run or um, maybe not doing anything at all, we forget that we're inside our bodies. There's so many people with pain and they have just totally separated themselves from their bodies. If you're not connected in, if your soul doesn't know that it's riding in this vehicle, then how can we know what's going to happen during the day, right? Or yeah. how do we know what's happened in the past or in going to happen in the future. Um, let's see daily ritual. I'm getting off topic. Um, I would be happy to do one podcast just talking about the daily ritual or daily routine, because it actually is one of the most important things that Ayurveda believes is to have a routine and to do it every day. And of course, things change inside of that, right? Mm -hmm. The intuitive nature of yourself might say, this exercise has to change with, you know, this day, that day, this food has to change because of the qualities, but the actual outline of the day is there for you. So what's the evening routine like? Depending on your imbalance is when you eat, because the, the cycle of digestion is different for vata, pitta, and kapha. Mm -hmm. So we would eat at a certain time, again, those qualities of foods that would work for you for balancing. And then for before bed, it is believed that you have to, before sleeping, again, sit. You don't have to sit. You can lie down. That's yoga nidra is lovely for that. If you sit and you quiet the mind before you go to bed, what you're doing is you're, you're assessing your day. You're then turning that off and you're allowing to kind of allow the spirit to travel and get outside of the body and realize that we are not our body. We are not our mind. We are connected to the divine. And when you do that, then sleep becomes better because you're, you're again, making the intention for sleep. So daily routines usually are what time you're going to eat dinner, and then when you're going to go to bed. And it is a very particular time because let's say if you're pitta and you stay up past 10, what happens is your pitta kicks on again. So then you have to wait to the next cycle to when you would be able to fall asleep. And the same is for vata and kapha. I mean, kapha wants to sleep all the time, but you know, vata as well, your vata can kick on and then all of a sudden you're airy and you're out of your mind. And then you have to wait again to the next cycle to go to bed. So for the daily routine, it would be when you're going to sleep, when you're eating, and then how you get out of your body before you sleep. Oh, this is really helpful. I'm going to, I'm really curious what my constitution is. <laughs> I'm going to ask you later okay. to find out. Sure. Digging deeper though, mm. from through your lens, how do we deal with an acute situation like the flu? Yes. Um, you know, once you've gotten the flu, um, if we're talking about influenza, when once you've received it, well, it's in your body, right? So you have to wait the time for it to pass through. 
but you could always support the symptoms. So the, there are many different symptoms, influenza. Of course, there's so many different influenzas. Usually it's with fever, right? So any type of fever is heat, but Ayurveda believes that you don't want to cool this heat because when you're burning, you need to burn out this flu that's within you when it gets to a certain point. And then when it gets to that point, then you bring it down. So Ayurveda would have cooling herbs as all herb, all three of my teachers have remedies for then cooling the temperature. Um, instead of just taking Panadol, there are herbs that you can take that can nourish the body at the same time as lower the temperature. The herbs is a drink that you boil or is a, how do you take that herb? It would depend on what type of fever, how high the fever is, where is it being shown in the body? There's some people that get fevers and it's just in the head. There's some people that feel hot in the back. Um, again, this is all the qualities of the fever. Some people are sweating. Some people are cold. You know, there's many different qualities. Mm. So Ayurveda would look at that. They would choose the right herb. And same for herbal medicine, the wise woman philosophy. There's a whole chest of medicine for when you get fevers. You know, there, there's even the tradition of cutting an onion and putting it on the forehead for cooling, right? There's many different, you know, ways to cool fevers. Um, Teas could be one of them. Yes, herbal medicine as tea could be one of them. Pastes, you know, herbal pastes could happen and, and help fevers. Um, but I think back to the original question is, can Ayurveda help? Of course, the food that you're eating, you know, usually you starve a fever, right? But if the fever comes down and you still have flu within you, what food are you eat? What are you eating to help for the organs to not work so hard so that it can fight the virus, right? So how can we eat certain foods? You know, what would you do in, in Hong Kong? You would probably eat congee, right? It's a very easy thing yeah. for the system to digest, but the rice has a lot of the proteins that's needed. Ayurveda would probably say do a kicheri, which would also add the yellow mung to the rice, right. you know, to give some more protein into the mix. Um, and then the wise women tradition or where I come from, we make chicken broth, which is known as to be like a natural antibiotic. Um, so, you know, you would eat all of these things. It really, you know, there, it, it depends on what it yeah. is that you have. It's hard to pinpoint, you know, one thing because Ayurveda is so much about looking at you right now and how I could help you. A cold and a fever is not just one thing, no. right? It could be so many different variation of that. Right. And I can give you an example. Like I, this last flu that just came to Hong Kong, it was it closed the schools, right? I mean, the schools were closed down just because of the flu. Well, my son got it. I didn't catch it in time. Of course, then once it's in the house, it's in the house. And my, then my daughter got it. Then my other daughter got it. My, my husband got it. Then my helper got it. I was the only one that didn't get it. And I'm not saying that not getting flu is good. I actually think our, our body needs flu in order to catalog that influenza. And then we actually keep that catalog inside us so that if it comes again, we have those antibodies, right? So I don't think it's good not to get it, but 
when mommy is taking care of a whole house, she can't get it. So I just did the preventative medicine from the first sneeze of my son. I tried with the rest of the family, but I truly was pumping a lot more than, you know, I was pumping in my children. And um, I do believe it helped to protect me from this flu. So I think, again, I pray to these herbs and I call down their spirits and say, I need you golden seal and echinacea. I need you to start fighting for me. You know, then I cut lots of ginger, lots of garlic, thyme. You know, I called to the bees and said, bees, I know you've helped thyme to become such a beautiful bush. And I know exactly where that thyme came from. I call on you to help to protect me. And, you know, it's it's that type of intention that also goes around me and I think mm. protected me. So... That is, a, a, I guess, another way of looking at flu and influenza. How can we prevent it when it comes yeah. at us? Do you make that as a tonic or how do you consume all these? All through uh, teas. Yes, all through teas. And this might be a bit of a controversial question, mm. but for more serious and terminal illnesses, mm. what's your approach in that? Well, I love modern medicine. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there that say they're against it. I think we are so blessed to have modern medicine. So I, I think with terminal illness, I mean, terminal is a difficult word because if you say terminal, they've already given up, right? Uh, the, the person themselves has given up, but you know, cancers, which is now becoming an everyday thing. You know, everyone I look around, you know, someone knows someone with cancer. Um, I think those things can be supported by Ayurveda, knowing the qualities of the body, where the cancer is. I don't know that I wouldn't use modern medicine, but I would use Ayurveda to help to balance the symptoms that they're receiving or what they're feeling. Right. If someone's going through chemo, that's very hot. So I would want to cool the body so that the heat is, you know, dampened. Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's again, using Ayurveda to help that situation. Like I said, Parkinson, you know, that, that's a, that's something that comes and it never goes away. Well, Ayurveda has found that's a vata disorder. And so if you do things to balance vata, then your shaking would be less. You could literally like drink a cup of tea. So it's not going to rid it from your body, but it would lower the amount of symptoms that you have. So aside from the physical conditions, mm -hmm. can Ayurveda also help with the mental side of things. Definitely. Um, I mean, I think that again is everything is the mental side of things. So, I mean, I remember sitting with Dr. Lod, um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we would sit with him every night. Um, this is when I was studying Ayurveda and he would go on for about two and a half hours talking about everything you can imagine. And the thing that comes up the most for me is when we would sit and pray and it would be mantras. Um, and the, the vibration that came from these mantras allowed us to go into a deeper connection and then allow the mind to pause and get into a deeper state of relaxation 
And then everything after that, his entire lecture, I absorbed more. I was able to really integrate what it was that he was saying. It became a part of me. But if we didn't have that mantra or that meditation beforehand, I don't know if I could say the same thing. And and, and that's an example for life, right? Mm. If I wake up and I calm the mind and I pray, the rest of my day has started that way, right? And and then you, you walk with this belief and every obstacle that you meet, you look as a, a way of a greater spiritual attainment. And so you start your day with that. You start your moments with that. You end your night with that. So Ayurveda believes that if we don't calm the mind, then health will never happen. What are the biggest misconceptions with Ayurveda? Mm. I remember having a client once who had terrible rashes all over her body, terrible rashes. And I tried everything to help her. You know, I really, everything that I was taught from all three of my teachers, even shamanically, you know, I, I, I tried and I, I couldn't help her. And then when we stopped all of the trying and we started just meditating, her rashes went away. For me, the misconceptions that are out there are just because people haven't found the quietness of the mind or the key that they were looking for. And usually people come to me when they've tried everything, you know, every type of medicine and nothing works. And that's why I always go towards meditation or, or journeying, you know, uh, dream journeying. I, I do believe that there are many people that are talking about Ayurveda now that haven't done the work. So I think that would be the misconception um, to call themselves consultants and they can't read the Sanskrit if you can't read the Sanskrit, you don't know what was being said, right? So it makes it quite confusing to then take a client and not understand the truth of the qualities. But with that being said, normally when someone is attracted to Ayurveda or any type of healing science, there is a part of them that opens. There's like this this truth that becomes unveiled. And once you've become unveiled, you're more likely to be on your path. So for me, misconceptions are people that are walking and haven't just, you know, like gotten on the escalator the right way. You know, they're not, they're just not there yet, but they're on the way, right? So I give them, you know, all the love that I can. When does herbal medicine becomes dangerous? Like what kind of people should not take it? Well, if I'm doing a consultation or when I'm doing a consultation, herbs is always the last source, right? Okay. So some people don't even get herbs from me. Because again, you need to be in the right mindset to be able to take the herbal medicine that I offer. Um, if you're just taking them like pills, I don't think it will work. 
you know, you need to have the right intention. So with that being said, not getting lost in that, if I then give the herbs, it is as food, not as in medicine. So you can't think about, for me, you can't think about herbs as something that's dangerous. It would be like food that's dangerous, right? Food is not dangerous. And these are plants of the earth. Mm -hmm. And the only time that you would use a very active, active herb is if you're dealing with a immediate situation that needs to be handled. Like I cut my finger and there's blood everywhere. We need to, you know, stop the blood. But I wouldn't say on an everyday basis to use that medicine on your hands. Herbal medicine, if used correctly, is to nourish the body and nourish the systems of the body like food would, right? And then if needed, we would use a harder, harsher, more active drug, medicine. Yeah. And and like essential oils, right? The, The whole world is using essential oils. That's medicine. Anything that you take as a plant and you change its structure, that's considered medicine. So I would be asking that question to aromatherapists more than I would to herbalists. We're using the food, they're making medicine. I want to go back to what you said about dream journeying. Mm. Can you please expand on that? I'm very curious. Where do I start? (laughs) Um, Maybe I could explain my last session. Okay, that's the only thing I can, you know. Perfect. This is a, a banker who is under a lot of stress and um, comes to me for weekly meditations. And what I did with him, um, and you can imagine, like I need to kind of set the stage a little bit. There's drumming happening, shamanic drumming, which is usually a heartbeat. So you can hear the heartbeat, right? You start to hear the heartbeat. And then I light the sage. I light the Palo Santo. I light the cedar. The sage is for blessing. The cedars for cleansing. And the Palo Santo is to then call down the spirit guides. And then I usually set a circle around us. I use the directions, the seven directions. I use the elements. And then I open the circle to any spirit guides that want to join that is coming for love and for light. So no darkness is allowed. Then once, you know, we're protected and we're in our little bubble, already you can feel that we're kind of coming out of our bodies. I don't know how to explain it. It's, you, you no longer feel your body anymore. And then we go even further to notice our bodies and then to see our body. So we do almost like a yoga nidra to scan the body, but then we look at the body. So then we come outside and start looking at our physical self. And once we see ourselves physically, then we go back in and look at the light sources. And in Ayurveda, they would call those the chakras, right? But for me, they truly are energetic centers. Mm. And so we go into these areas of areas of energy. We may pull down some magical tools that, that come into our, our vision to cleanse 
we may put water, we might put fire, we might have a ball of light that grows into something. But let's say yesterday we were at his heart center and then we traveled up to the throat and the throat just opened in front of me and we went inside his throat and we were then in a cave and in the cave there was a you know we could feel the cave the wetness and the, the ground that we walked in and as we're inside this cave we see a fire and there's this big burning fire now this is in his throat but we're no longer in his throat we're in a cave with a fire and his council came it was surrounded with old ancient men of different tribes that were surrounding the fire and then this wolf came out of nowhere and sat beside him and he talked to his council and he asked questions the questions that he needed to ask and then all of a sudden this woman comes out of the flames and she went out and went into his body and she became him and whispered to every cell in his body, came back out, digested by the fire, him and the wolf get up, and then they start walking back down the cave. The wolf stays and he walks back out of his throat and we continue to rise up into the other energy centers. And when we came back into our bodies, he just started crying. He was there. He was with me. We, we were journeying. And I record these things. And then if you listen to them, the wind comes at the right time or the crow call in the, the shamanic drumming or everything is in its time. The elements join us in this moment. And it's quite moving. I'm trying to explain what happens in a dream journey. And so who, who is doing the talking during this session? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking. So you are, yeah. and then you will prompt certain things and then he will share what he sees. No, he, he doesn't talk. No, but the other person, it. I see everything. Yes, I'm, I, and it's not me. It's not Shoshana. In fact, usually I forget, but because this was, you know, just a few hours ago, like it's still very clear for me. Um, and that's another reason why I record it so that they could journey again. It's like a channeling of something, maybe one of my guides, um, that then comes out of me. I, I never plan what's going to happen. It just, it, it happens. Yeah. When was the first time you, what, you experienced this? The first time I journeyed was with Robin, my, my, my wise woman teacher. She's probably the one who taught me to access this. Yeah. In fact, the wolf comes quite often. I remember the first time being with a wolf. And so when the client walks mm -hmm. away with this journey, mm -hmm. what do they usually do with this vision? Well, it's, it's new every time, right? Like yesterday, I also had a first time client and she was suggested to come by her daughter who, who sees me and her English is, is not so good. And we were still able to journey. 
I mean, we, we, we definitely journeyed, you know, I, so I asked the daughter, could you ask, you know, your mom, how, how she loved it. And she said that she just is a different person. You know, she just has changed. Her face has changed. Everything has changed. And she wants to book another session because, you know, it's like it awakens something in you, in people. I want to go back a little mm. bit after nine years in what seems like the dream job mm. as the spa director of Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to leave? That place at the Four Seasons was my beautiful home for nine years. You know, I had the most amazing team and the spa itself was a sanctuary more than it was a spa. I mean, we, we did a lot of healing I was able to then spread that love, let's say, to Asia with um, a partner, Louisa, um, who was based in, is based in Bali. And so that's when we created and developed spas in Asia. And then I had teams throughout Asia. And the job itself became quite big, very busy. For about four years, three years, I was trying to have my third child and I wasn't successful. I had many, many miscarriages. Um, Nine to be exact. Nine to be exact. Yes. All beautiful spirits. When I was able to get through, you know, the first trimester with Malka, my third, I knew that my time was done there. Um, at Four Seasons. I knew that I couldn't give the same and I wanted to be with my children. I just, it was time. Um, I'd done what I needed to do. I had uh, healed and, and created many healers or helped to. Then it was just time to work on my own family. I love it. It's such a beautiful change. It was hard to leave and I still love so many of them. Since we touched on it, Are you comfortable to share your story about the miscarriages and how you found your strength, right? I think your story Mm -hmm. will help a lot of women. Oh, I'd love to help as many women as I can. You know, I've had trouble with all three of my children to get pregnant. The first was in Mexico when I was living in Mexico and I was introduced to Doña Rita, who's passed on now, but she was an old Mayan midwife after trying for a year, I couldn't get pregnant. And she did a Mayan abdominal massage on me or abdominal massage. And she used amazing herbal oils. I have no idea what those were. She couldn't explain them to me. They were Mayan traditional herbs. Anyway. And then the next month I was pregnant with Lotem, my first, he was actually born 1111. He's a very special being. And then again, when I wanted to have a second child, I struggled and could not get pregnant. And I happened to be talking about this in in the canteen. And Linda, who was one of my therapists, she said to me, oh, I can do that. I've, I've done that. I learned in my village in the Philippines. So I said, let's go. And with her healing hands, um, the next month I was pregnant with Kalanit, my second, quite magic. Um, So I believe in Mayan abdominal massage or I believe in abdominal, I believe in taking care of our wounds. Let's say that um, self-care. And then uh, that's a whole nother subject. It is. (laughs) Um, 
but then when I tried again for a third, um, I had a different experience and that was, I was getting pregnant, but could not keep the baby. And usually around eight or nine weeks I would miscarry. But then there was this pull inside me, um, that wanted to keep trying and thank God my husband was able to deal with me and, you know, loss. Um, so he's a very strong man to be able to support me and we would try again and then failure, try again and then failure. And I wouldn't say failure, but loss. Um, how did you deal with the loss? Um, I would do ceremony. I would create space. Um, I would kind of like, you know, a dandelion that has the, the white flowers and I would like blow them, you know, I would help their spirits along because my belief was that, cause I felt the light within me, you know, you know, when you're pregnant, you feel the light, you feel sacred, you feel something so special. Even if you don't want the baby, it's hard to fight that light. You know, it's just pure potential at its most beautiful. So I felt them very strongly and, and loved even from a very, you know, I would know like that, that I was pregnant. And so I just would help them to move on as, as spirits, as walkers of this land. They didn't need to prove or have their duty or their dharma. They, they were, they had it. I helped to pass them you know, to a higher place. I truly believe that. How did your husband deal with the loss and how did you guys support each other? To be honest, no one could have supported me. This was a, this was a mission for me. You know, it was my own mission. I have no idea why I was given this as a mission, but it was and I had to keep going, you know, there was no way of stopping. I mean, my closest friends would be like, enough, my mother, she'd be like, not again. No, you know, I mean, it was, it was a very clear message to so many people for me to stop, but I couldn't, it was just not possible. So Gonzalo, um, he didn't want to deal with these things. And I don't think he had the, not the capacity, but I don't know if he would have the medicine that I needed. You know, it was a, it was a solo, solo journey for me, but the fact that he would then, you know, want to try again was his support. You know, he never, never questioned, um, to try again. It was never a question. And that, that's what I needed. What happened before the third one mm. was conceived? Yes. So, um, my my dear friend Rebecca had done a journey for me, and this was the first time that I had met her. Um, I hope that you interview her. She had come because she'd heard that I was um, hosting wellness people at, at the spa, and so she heard of me, and she wanted to offer me a session. During this journey, to make it short, she had told me that I came from a land where I had been raped, and that I was then pregnant from this rape and then died in childbirth. This was, uh, I was a priestess uh, in, I think, the Roman times. She had seen this. And so that had stuck to me genetically. 
um, or on my spirit. And so it was living itself out. Here it is coming with all these babies. And the only way to have a baby would be to go back to my homeland where she had seen me and the wind would cleanse me. Okay. So this is very esoteric, but it happened to be that I was going to Israel the next day for summer vacation. And, um, she didn't know that, but I was going to my homeland. And when I was there, I was in travel, right? It was, it was touring around Israel with the kids and my family. And it was from this place, this place, listen. And I mean, it was, it was beautiful and sacred, but there was a lot of movement. And we got to Svat, which was a kind of holy city, Um, and it was Friday, but we didn't realize that it was Friday, which is Shabbat, which means there's no cars, there's no driving, there's no looking at your phones, like all mechanics stop. You don't carry anything. You know, it's a very, um, day of nothingness and prayer in the evening to the next sundown. So here we are driving into town and all of these religious people are walking, looking at us and we realize, oh my God, time to get out. As we drive out, we came to a forest And this forest was right outside of town. We stopped there. There was a playground, so the kids were playing. And mom and I um, continued just to do a a walk. And as we we got to like the top of this hill, and it was all wooded, we kind of stood there and just, you know, absorbed the energy. And then I said, let's sit, let's meditate a little bit. Let's take, my mom's also a meditator. So we did, we sat and we closed our eyes. And then like this gush of wind comes out of nowhere and knocks me over. And I sit back up and I open, obviously my eyes are open. I look at my mother and she's sitting there peacefully. And I'm like, mom, did you not feel that? And she said, what are you talking about? It was so peaceful, you know, and. I'm sitting there and I I have a thought like you're losing your mind, right? It wasn't like, oh, remember what Rebecca said. It was just, you're losing your mind. So we get up, we join the family and we keep going. Then we, just me and my, my small family, we leave our parents and we go to, um, Greece in Greece. It was incredible. We found this magic Island. It was there that I know I had conceived as we come back to Israel to fly back home, my darling friend, Yael Malka, um, she told me we need to go see this rabbi. We go and we see this rabbi three hours before we're leaving to go back home. It was quite rushed. And the rabbi, just to make the story a little bit shorter, he tells me that I am pregnant. I will know in a few weeks And he gave me not only something to wear, but a ritual to do that involved herbs and prayers from the Torah. If I would complete these on a daily basis and not tell anyone or say anything, then I would have my child. And one thing that I'm leaving out is that when we were in the, when we were in Jerusalem and we were at the wall, the wailing wall, it's, you know, there's tons of women and we're all trying to, you know, touch and, and say prayers and touch this, this wall, which was the old temple. Instead of me trying to get my hand through, 
I sat there and I was with my daughter, Colony, my second, and I meditated. So I'm sitting there meditating. But what I'm actually doing is I'm enacting in my mind the story of Hannah, which she is an old woman and she tried so hard to have a child and she couldn't. And I am also very old trying to have a child. So I related to her and she stood pointing at God, speaking without a voice, demanding that God give her a child. She was said that I am having this child for you so that Judaism lives. Give me this child enough. So I was in my mind journeying. I became Hannah and I spoke to God and I demanded that I keep this child. And Malka is alive. Well, thank you so much for sharing yeah. this story. What her, you, and her name is actually Malka Hanna. That's her name. What do you think the message is? This experience, what is the message for you and the lives that you will touch? You know, there's more to this world than our body and our minds. If you truly believe, then... And, and, and believe in God and, and God could have whatever name, like Gaia, universe, you know, whatever, whatever you, the belief in this source of ultimate love, if you have that belief, then anything that happens to you in this world will be okay. That's my message. And what is the ultimate takeaway you want people to know about wise women medicine, plant medicine, Ayurveda healing? Is that you can heal yourself. We don't need anyone else to do the healing. That we have the power to heal ourselves and this planet. And that with connection and with understanding and with quieting the mind and using the breath, we can, we can do that. We can achieve that. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shoshana. I have so many more questions and would actually like to learn more about what food to eat to balance the hot, the cold, the dryness and the dampness. I guess that might just have to be a part two. You can learn more about Shoshana and her work at Tove Earth on Facebook and Instagram at Tove Earth or at Shoshana.Weinberg. The show notes of this episode are on my website, interested.blog. I love receiving your messages. They encourage me to continue bringing you helpful wellness content and they also help others find the podcast too. If you like my work, hit subscribe and share it with a friend.